0: I invite you to open with me this morning to Malachi chapter 1. Malachi chapter 1. We'll begin reading in just a moment in verse 6. If you've not been here for the start of the sermon series, I'll give you a little while to find the book of Malachi. It's at the end of the Old Testament. It's the very last book in the Old Testament. And uh, so if you go to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, just make a left turn and go back to Malachi. We're continuing our series in Malachi this morning, and it's entitled, Waiting. Waiting. It's a very intentional title to the sermon. I want to give you a a quick refresher on how we've arrived at where we are today in the book of Malachi and why this series is titled, What It Is. You see this book, it records the last words that are spoken by God to his people Israel right before a period of about 400 years Of silence that God is is sharing with his people Israel some final words some last things some things that he wants them to keep in mind and remember as they go into this long period of waiting the tone of this book is harsh it is direct listen there's no way around that but in the midst of the strong words listen so close church in the midst of the strong words there is this thread of God's grace And there is this call he has on our lives to experience his goodness and his mercy and his grace in the midst of the waiting. Today we're looking at what it means for us to worship God in the waiting. I don't know about you, but when I'm waiting on God to do something and anxious about what he's doing around me, I'm not necessarily in a worshipful attitude. I want God to to get things done now. We live in a right-now culture, and it's really hard sometimes to worship God in the middle of that waiting. You see, it's easy for us to equate worship with just the songs that we sing on Sunday or the service that you and I are attending at this very moment. But worship is so much more than that, church. It's more than any chord that can be played. It's more than any lyric that can be sung, whether beautiful or not so much. Worship is this, it's a posture before God. It's a condition of our heart always before him. You could also say that worship is ascribing honor, value, and worth to someone or something. Here's the problem, though. All of us are inclined to worship something or someone other than God. We worship our careers We worship our social status. We worship ourselves. We worship our families, our possessions, and so many other things. We ascribe worth and value to all the wrong things and to all the wrong people. In all of this, we give little thought to what it means to truly worship God, to ascribe the worth to him that is due to him. In this morning's passage, God calls us and he calls the children of Israel back to a proper posture of worship. And here's what we see in this passage. Worthwhile worship. Worthwhile worship is cultivated by honesty and humility before God. I emphasize worthwhile in that statement. Because you see, there is a such thing as worthless worship worship. There is a such thing as apathetic worship. There is a such thing as coming into this place passively. But there is indeed worthwhile worship. And this passage is going to call us into that posture this morning. Now, I want to give you a fair warning. You're going to hear in a moment as I read this passage, it is harsh. It is direct. And God gets in our face this morning. And quite honestly, as I sat before this passage this week, I did not look forward to preaching this message. It wasn't something I was necessarily excited about. It was painful for me to reflect upon my own life this week and my posture before God. Is it something that's only turned on for a moment on Sunday morning and then turned off as quickly as Monday arrives? I don't think I'm alone in that. As I put myself out there before you, I think that we're all in this together. That we're all inclined to somehow lose this posture before God. With that in mind, would you stand with me and honor the reading of God's Word? Malachi chapter 1, beginning in verse 6, and we're going to read through the end of the chapter this morning. The Word of the Lord to Malachi and the people of Israel and to us today. A son honors his father. And a servant, his master. But if I'm a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is your fear of me? Says the Lord of armies to you priests who despise my name. Yet you ask, how have we despised your name? By presenting, presenting defiled food on my altar. How have we defiled you, you ask? When you say the Lord's table is contemptible. When you present a blind animal for sacrifice, is it not wrong? And when you present a lame or sick animal, is it not wrong? Bring it to your governor. Would he be pleased with you or show you favor? Ask the Lord of armies. And now plead for God's favor. Will he be gracious to us? Since this has come from your hands, will he show any of you favor? Ask the Lord of armies. I wish one of you would just shut the temple doors so that you would no longer kindle a useless fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of armies, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name, my name will be great among the nations, from the rising of the sun to its setting. Incense and pure offerings will be presented in my name in every place, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of armies. But you are profaning it when you say... The Lord's table is defiled, and its product, its food, is contemptible. You also say, look, what a nuisance, and you scorn it, says the Lord of armies. You bring stolen, lame, or sick animals. You bring this as an offering? Am I to accept that from your hands, says the Lord? The deceiver is cursed, who has an acceptable male in his flock, and makes a vow, but sacrifices a defected animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of armies. And my name will be feared among the nations. Let's pray together. God, there are times when we come before your word, and it is strong. For the tone of your voice is harsh. But God, we know your word is good. And God, that wrapped up in these harsh words is goodness and grace and mercy. And so God, as you call us to yourself this morning, as you call for us to turn in our posture today, I pray that all of us would consider carefully what it means to worship you in sincerity. God, use your word as only you can. Speak clearly. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you be seated? I read the passage this morning with a great deal of expression because I believe that is indeed what God's tone is in that passage. It's not one of kindness It is harsh. It is difficulty. It is difficult. There are two points to today's message. There's a clear division as you look between verses 10 and 11. From verses 6 through 10, we get a series of questions, eight of them to be exact. And it's through these questions that God draws us to understand something important. Then as we get to verse 11, through the end of the chapter, he stops asking so many questions. He begins making some very direct and pointed statements. The first point we see this morning is this. Honesty before God begins with recognizing our brokenness. Honesty before God begins with recognizing our brokenness. You see, church, our sincere worship, it is derailed so often by an inaccurate appraisal of ourselves. We tend to think, every single one of us, more highly of ourselves than we should. There is not a person in this room that is not guilty of this. In a culture that prizes self-sufficiency, we allow ourselves to wrongly believe that somehow we can stand on our own two feet apart from God. And in doing so, we fail to acknowledge our own brokenness before him and our need for him. This week during Vacation Bible School, we shared with the kids that were here over and over again our need for Jesus. That was the emphasis as we shared the call for response, for them to respond to the gospel. And of the three students that gave their lives to Christ, they all checked one box on a card. They said, I have some questions. And so we met in my office for a brief moment, and we explored some of those questions. And two of the three had the same question. They said, Pastor Jared, what does it mean for me to be broken? What does it mean? You said over and over again tonight that, I need Jesus. What does that mean? And there's something so clear in those statements from those kids. A reconsideration of our posture before God and our position before him. Our helplessness without him. In their innocence was identified something that should be true of every single one of us, church. We need him. And without him, we cannot stand. So how do we begin to recognize our brokenness? I think there are three clear ways explained as we look at verses 6 through 10 of chapter 1. The first way is this. We must see how good God has been to us. We've got to see and remember constantly, keep it ever before our eyes, how good God has been to us. You see, God is described in verse 6, that one verse, by three different names. Father, Master, and Lord of Armies. And each of these titles should serve as a reminder of God's goodness. It was a reminder to Israel at that time of God's goodness, of his faithfulness, of his mercy. Notice the titles, if you will, beginning in verse 1. He says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. But I am a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is your fear of me, says the Lord of armies. This picture of father is especially important as we consider the first audience of Israel. You see, it would have rang very clear to Israel as they heard these words that God was indeed their father dating back to as long ago as the Exodus. We find in Exodus chapter 4 and verse 22, God is commissioning Moses to go to Pharaoh. And here's what he says to Moses. He says, and you will say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. What a great reminder. What a great way for God to instill his love and his confidence in his people. And in Moses at that moment, for him to say, you are my firstborn son. I love you. I have compassion and I have grace and mercy towards you and I am with you. Then there's the title of master. Israel would have certainly been familiar of what it meant to call someone their master as they would have remembered no doubt their slavery in Egypt as they looked at the Egyptians around them and called them master. But what did God do? Again, reminding them of his goodness. God purchased them. He delivered them. He rescued them out of that bondage. And he was now their master. Again, he is their father. He is their master. But notice also this title right at the end there. He is the Lord of Armies. This phrase, this title is very unique to the book of Malachi. We're going to hear this over and over again. And here's what it communicates. Israel would have understood that this name for God was a great reminder of his mighty deliverance of them. That when they were indeed facing great enemies before them. And it seemed like they were outnumbered and outmanned. God was with them, and he was indeed the Lord of armies. Maybe you remember the story, the Bible story you studied as a kid, of Joshua at Jericho. They were facing a great army, far more numerous than they, and this wall that was fortified all around the city, and no doubt they would have looked at this and said, there is absolutely no way we can win this battle. But Joshua has a very interesting conversation with someone outside the city walls. And guess who that was? It was the Lord of armies. And so when God refers to himself here in Malachi as the Lord of armies, he's reminding Israel that he is their deliverer. Church, listen. All of these things that were true for Israel, all of these things that they heard, these reminders of God's goodness, they are true for us as well. Our sincere worship, it is rooted in knowing how good God has been to us already. Don't forget that he has sent us a Savior who bought us with his blood and cleansed us from our sin. Don't forget that he has given us a new name, that he has indeed called us his sons and daughters if we are his children and we have turned to him, repented of our sin and trusted in him. He has adopted us into the family of God. He has been good to us already. Don't forget, as we come into this place each and every week, and even as you leave today, that your posture of worship, your heart condition before him, it is rooted in knowing how good he has been. But secondly, notice this as we get to verses 7 through 9. We must see our sin the way that God sees it. We've got to see our sin the way that God sees it. I'm not going to reread verses 7 through 9 to you. They are perhaps the harshest of the words in this passage. But I want to explain to you kind of what it means. We could go into a lot of detail here to explain what the the sacrificial system of Israel looked like and what God expected. And and I don't want to bore you with those details this morning. Many of you are reading the Bible with us. You, You read through Exodus with us and you read all the way through Leviticus too. And you know what those details sound like. But God had a set standard for his people and how they were to worship him. And it's interesting as we look at the end of verse 6 that that God is addressing here the priests of Israel, those who were leading Israel in worship. And all through verses 7 through 9, he's saying, listen, this is how you have broken the direct commands of God relating how you are to worship me. In jest, he was saying, You have brought me second best offerings at best. He is saying to them, listen, you are bringing me these broken offerings, these broken sacrifices that aren't a sacrifice at all. And yet I have told you clearly in my word how you are to offer sacrifices before me. So through a series of questions, God exposes the seriousness of Israel's sin. Here's the truth. They had failed to see their sin the way God had seen it. Church, listen close. The worst sin is the sin that we fail to see. All of us are aware of sin in our lives in various ways. We see evidence of that all around us. You know even the secret sins in your heart that no one else knows. But we're talking about something far deeper than any of that. We're talking about The sin in your life that you may not, even at this moment, be aware of. The secret sin that is even a secret to you. The hidden sin that you have missed. Let me share this in an illustration to make this clear and how this is possible for God's people to miss the mark without realizing it. The Southern Baptist Convention of churches, of which which we are a part of as a church, Regrettably was founded in 1845 over disagreements regarding slavery. You see the Northern Baptists they thought that absolutely we should abolish any practice of slavery and we as God's people certainly should never own slaves. But there were Southern Baptists the founding members of our Southern Baptist convention who owned slaves themselves. They were the founding trustees of one of our seminaries. In 1995, our convention leaders issued a great apology for this great misdeed. And you say to yourself, as, as I did when I began to understand this history, how in the world could they miss that? How could they ever say that that was okay by God's standards? And yet they missed it. Woe to us if we are too quick to accuse them and not look at ourselves. The better question, instead of asking how could they have missed it, the better question is this, what have we missed? What secret sin that is still a secret to us even now have we missed recognizing? Let me propose a few of these to us. What about the sin of consumerism? It's a A lie that our culture perpetuates that we need to accumulate more and more and more. We are taught, even from our earliest years of working, that by the end of our working years, we better have a healthy 401k, that we better store up treasures on this earth so that we can enjoy the end of our life. I just ask you is that a sin? I'm not sure. But I think it's a question we have to ask. When God clearly says not to store up treasures for yourself on this earth. Is it uncomfortable to consider? Absolutely. But no doubt this was not easy for Israel to hear either. What about the sin of this cultural Christian facade? What do I mean by that? I mean that we have here in the South this understanding that if we can somehow tip the scales in our favor of goodness, then we're good before God. I talk to people week after week after week here at this church who who we are ministering to. Times of ministry that you don't get to see, church. But these... Intimate moments where someone needs help or they need assistance and I sit down before them and I ask them to explain to me what their relationship with God looks like. And I can't tell you how many times one of them looks me in the face and says, well, I think I'm a pretty good person. And it is so hard for me to confront that with the gospel. Why is it so hard? Because they've heard it from a Christian family member. They've heard it from a pastor at some point. This inability that we have at times to address sin for what it is. And i share with you the greatest sin that I think all of us have missed, and that is a negligence of the great commission of God. I think if all of us were honest, we would not say that our first priority is getting the gospel to the nations. Our first priority is not that, most likely. Our first priority is to make sure that church is comfortable for us that it meets our needs, that it is what we want. I share these with you not with harshness, but with sincerity and with brokenness because I recognize that these were secret sins in Israel's life. And what secret sins have we missed? We have to see sin the way that God sees it, church and be honest if we're going to sincerely worship him. But thirdly, as we look at verse 10, we must see that sin separates us from God. We must see that sin separates us from God. Notice what God says in verse 10. He says, I wish that one of you would just shut the temple doors. He says, shut it down. He says, if we're not going to get this right, we're not going to do it at all. If you're going to continue to be disobedient, if you're going to continue to offer me these broken sacrifices that aren't really a sacrifice at all, If you're going to continue to come before me with insincere worship, listen, we're not going to have worship at all. You may say, well, that would be like God closing the doors on every church in America. But I want to share with you, it's more than that in this passage. It's even more severe than anything we could possibly imagine. Because you see, the temple was the primary and only access that the people of Israel had to God. It was central to all religious life. Understand that it was in the temple and only in the temple that sacrifices could be offered on behalf of the people for forgiveness of their sins. Church, this was serious. When God said, you know what? We're going to just close the doors. He was essentially saying, I'm going to close off access between you and me. That's completely foreign to all of us. But I say all of that to highlight the seriousness of sin. That it indeed separates us From God. It is a barrier between us and Him. Church, we tend to turn away from God's strong words of condemnation in favor of His soft words of encouragement. Even worse, and you can write this down, instead of listening to God's clear shouts of displeasure concerning our sin, we listen to Satan's whispers of temptation. I have no doubt. That through a passage just like this, God shouts at us as his people and says, Guys, let's get real. Let's talk about your posture before me. Let's talk about the hidden and secret sin in your life. God help us if we don't hear that, and yet we walk out of these doors, and we listen and give credence to the whispers of Satan and his temptation. Paul says it best in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 3 Listen carefully. He says, For the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires they will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. I know this morning is uncomfortable. I confess to you that it was uncomfortable for me to write this very sermon. But being true to God's word, this is what he says to us. We must listen. Before we can worship God with sincerity, we have to be honest before him. As he interrogates us, just like as he interrogated Israel here, we have to listen to him. He is asking us many of the same questions that he asked Israel then. Again, God help us if we don't take care to listen. But listen, it's not only about honesty and brokenness before God. Notice also that sincere worship, it is grounded in this second truth as we get to verse 11. Notice this, humility before God begins with recognizing God's greatness. So again, real simple understanding, just a kind of an airplane picture of these verses. Verses 6 through 10, it's all about us rightly understanding who we are before God. As you get to verse 11 and you go through verse 14, it's all about rightly understanding who God is. Real simple. Eight questions are posed to to God's people in verses 6 through 10, and only one is found following that in verse 13. The attention turns as we get to verse 11 from this series of questions to direct affirmations of who God is. And we affirm that God is great in these verses. So how do we personally begin to recognize God's greatness? What is the call in this passage? First of all, we see that we must ascribe great value to God's name. We must ascribe great value to God's name. Notice in verse 11 alone, it sounds so repetitive, but listen to it once again. He says, My name will be great among the nations, from the rising of the sun to its setting. Incense and pure offerings will be presented in my name in every place, because My name will be great among the nations. Notice, three different times God emphasizes, My name will be great. There's a lot in a name. Names convey status, identity, and reputation. And God cares deeply about our attitude concerning His name. In Exodus chapter 20 and verse 7, we know this well. God says, Do not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. But I think we misunderstand what it means to take God's name in vain. In a culture that where we make cute phrases like OMG commonplace in text messages, we misunderstand what it means to truly take the name of God in vain. Here's what vain means in that commandment. It means when you ascribe little value to no value to the name of God. We don't have to do that in our speech, church. It's not just in what we say, but it's also in what we do and how we live. Very simply, it means ascribing a sense of emptiness to the name of the Lord. Church, listen close. We can't lose our sense of wonder that God has a name and that he has disclosed that name to us. Understand, church, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the infinitely powerful, the infinitely magnificent God has told us his name. Listen, you, you may think for a moment about a, a celebrity or someone that may seem larger than life to you at this moment and say, you know what, I would love it if they just knew my first name, right? If, if I could call them on the phone and, hey, my phone number was saved in theirs, and they answered the phone and said, hey, how you doing today, Flip. Right? That'd be great, wouldn't it? We can think of famous people and large than life people that we would love if they just knew our name. Why? Because names convey intimacy. Names convey a sense of knowing. And church, listen, this infinitely powerful and magnificent God, he has said, my name is Yahweh. My name is the Lord. If we ever lose our sense of wonder that God has a name, And he's disclosed that name to us. We are just as guilty as anyone else who curses in his name. But notice this also as we get to verse 13. As we continue to affirm God's greatness and recognize his greatness, we must approach worship with enthusiasm. We need to be excited to be here. I love what the ESV says, how it translates it in that passage. The ESV says, what a weariness that is. And you snort at it. In other words, what a weary thing worship has become. You turn your nose up at it. It's a nuisance to you, we read. Let me illustrate it for you this way. Some of us were drug to and from church as kids. If that's true of you, would you raise your hand? All right, y'all are still listening. That's great. Some, some of y'all were a little late to the game, but you got it there, okay? We were drug to and from church as kids. Why? Because we had parents who said, you need to be here. This is church, and we're going together as a family. The problem is, some of us never grew out of that. This week at Vacation Bible School, I, I was walking around the very first night, checking on our teachers, just you know, just poking my head in the door and saying, hey, how y'all doing? Everything good? Y'all doing all right? And this one teacher, very first night, she came to the door, and she said, i got to tell you a story. I said, all right. So she comes, she comes out there in the hall, and she says, listen, very first night, this kid looked at me right in the eye, and he said, I don't like you and I don't want to be here. (laughs) She said, What do I say? And I was like, You you just keep on going, sister. Just keep on going. Right? I mean, but here's the thing I think many of us never grow out of that. Right? We have this mentality that, listen, if if we don't like being here, we're going to take our ball and go home. When God says we need to be here and be enthusiastic about, Not who else is here, but because he is here. To be excited because we're worshiping the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We have a privileged church to come into this place. Listen to what the psalmist says. We read this a moment ago in Psalm 27 verse 4. One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Psalm 42 verses 1 and 2. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul, it pants for you. Psalm 63 and verse 1 Oh God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh, it yearns for you, God, in a dry and weary land where there is no water. We have to have that sense of urgency. Not just when we're in this place, but when we leave this place, recognizing that we should be enthusiastic and excited to worship the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But thirdly, as we're trying to again recognize his greatness, who he is, we must affirm his agenda. We must affirm his agenda. If we're honest, we generally have our own agendas. We have our own ways of doing things. In our minds, we think, listen, if things are going to go right, they must happen this way. We were checking kids in this past week at the the check-in station, and the first night had gone a little chaotic. The second night went great. The third night, though, it came, and the printer that was printing the child name tag labels just absolutely went kaput. It stopped working. And the fleshly me came out and those of you who interacted with me at that moment you saw it and I was nervous I was anxious and I was thinking all right Lord you got to make this work if tonight's going to work this has to work and I remember Cherie looking at me and saying sweetheart it's going to be all right VBS is still going to happen kids are still going to hear about Jesus it's going to be great would you put a smile on your face people are looking at you so I put that half-hearted smile on my face and I walked away And then it started working. Apparently, I was the problem. But listen, we have our own agendas. We have our own ways of doing things. And we we set in our minds and in our hearts and we say, if it doesn't happen this way, then then I can't be happy or I cannot continue to worship God. Every one of us come into this place each week and we think that to ourselves. If we sing that song, my goodness, it's going to be terrible. If he says that from the pulpit, my goodness, I don't think I could stand that again. If this change is not made, I don't know if I can keep attending. Church, listen. It's not about us. Notice what God says in verse 14. At the end, the last sentence, he says, For I am a great king. He says, guys, I'm in charge. It's not about you. It's about me. He continues. He says, my name is... It will be feared among the nations. He says, guys, if, if you're not going to understand this, if you're not going to get the picture, guess what? My name is still going to be great. It's not dependent on you and your obedience and your picture of the way things should be. My name will still be great, with or without you. Turn to Matthew chapter 28. Some of you close your Bibles, open them back up. Matthew 28. Again, God says at the end of Malachi chapter 1, verse 14, he says, my name will be great among where? Among the nations. Listen to what Jesus says, his parting words, as he left this earth, beginning in verse 19, Matthew chapter 28, he says to his disciples, he says, go therefore and make disciples of, what's it say? All nations. He says, this is the mandate. This is the end of the story. This is what worship looks like. Church, listen close. Our greatest worship is not necessarily offered as we sing his name in a song. Instead, our greatest worship is offered when we proclaim his name among those who have never heard his name. That is worship. It's not about what the song sounds like here. It's not about what style of music it might be here. It's about the mandate of the Great Commission and our obedience to that mandate. That is worship. We've talked this morning about our posture before God. What worship should look like. Honesty and humility. The call has been for us to be honest with ourselves even when it cuts deep, even when secret sins are exposed. And then we have looked at our great God as we humble ourselves before him as our great king. And it's in all of this church that we truly worship him. Two points of decision this morning. You can do this right where you're sitting, and actually, the greater decision is made when you leave this place today. The first point of decision is this. Perhaps for the very first time, you have recognized your absolute broken condition before God, your helplessness before him, that just like those kids this past week who gave their lives to Christ for the very first time, you have sat there and said, I need Jesus. It's not just a cute thing that we do to pray a prayer to walk an aisle, and for people to clap for us. No, you've recognized for the very first time in your life that you need Jesus. I invite you to do this. As soon as the service is over today, why don't you hang out and talk to me for a minute? I'm here. I would love to have an opportunity to show you how Jesus, as your greatest need, invites you into relationship with him. But secondly, perhaps you have been grieved to recognize your own apathy in worship. That these sins we've talked about, how we come into this place with an improper attitude, an improper posture. Maybe you sat there this morning and it's cut deep and it's hurt. My goodness, it's hurt. It's hurt me. Listen, as we sing in just a moment, if you're not singing, would you just pray right where you're at? A prayer of repentance and say, God, let me worship you the way that you have told me to. Let me have that proper attitude of humility and honesty before you at all times. And then, go. Go. Again, the most pure form of worship is not what happens in this building each week. It's what you do out there. And so go and proclaim his name in this community and to the ends of the earth.